Our course on marriage, Sunday morning, May 29th. Let's start with a little icebreaker. Now, sorry for you single folks, but feel free to speak up if you've had a special relationship where you received a gift. I'd like to, you to answer this question. What's one of the most thoughtful, meaningful gifts you've received from your spouse? So I'll give you time to think. I'll go first. Janice is an extraordinarily thoughtful gift giver. Like she's at one end of the continuum, I'm at the other. I'm just a dud when it comes to giving thoughtful gifts. I'll give you an example. At the very beginning of our relationship, I had a, when we met, my childhood black Labrador was named Susie, and I guess I had a slide of Susie. I took a lot of pictures of her. She somehow got one of those slides and blew it up into a lovely print and framed it for me. Very, very thoughtful. More recently, I'd finished writing a book on humility, and in each of the chapters, I quoted from a song, from pop hymns and some popular music, and she, for my birthday a couple years ago, took all of those songs and burned all those songs on one CD. I just thought, how thoughtful of her. So those are some of the very, very thoughtful gifts among the many Janice has given me over the years. How about you? What's a really thoughtful, meaningful gift you've received from a friend or a spouse. You want bad examples too? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> the worst gift I ever gave was to gave Melanie a vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> meaningful gifts really stand out for you? Bob? I can think of bad, bad examples. Okay. My mother used to hate to be given perfume. She thought, we thought she smelled Okay. No perfume or kitchen appliances for Bob Worth's mother. You've all been forewarned. <laughs> Some positive examples? Anyone? This isn't that hard of a question, is it? Janice? My husband loves to, to take me on travels to places where I can collect river rocks. And he's willing to go wherever there's a good beach or a good location for me to to, uh, and he's willing to carry them for me, too. So. <laughs> so, and what's the farthest place I took you so far? Alaska. Wow. Oh. But we mailed those home. He carried them back from the beach, but we hope them. Buy one of those boxes, you know, that one Black size fits. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they lost money on us. <laughs> Thank you, honey. Anyone else? Oh, I know. Okay, Laura? I have been talking for years. I have a hard time sleeping really dark and really quiet, which is really impossible. But um, So I called my sleep cave, and finally for our 10th anniversary, Ken got room darkening curtains, and then a few took him a little while. I knew this was a very hard gift for him because he has, he's not good, he doesn't like, or is not naturally inclined towards handyman stuff. So to install the curtain rods was a big deal. So he bucked up, and after a little while, after giving me the gift, before our 11th anniversary, he <laughs> 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 my sleep cave. So the room is dark. It's not quiet yet. That's a great example. That's a very good example. Very thoughtful. Thank you, Laura. Anyone else? 
All right, um, here's my follow-up question. If you're married or in close relationships with roommates, friends, brothers, sisters, if you're not married, give some examples of a gift you can daily, regularly give this person in this close relationship. What's some examples of daily gifts you can give them? Regular gifts. Tal? Advice, whether solicited or not. <laughs> so and so, you encourage Huang and give her advice. You you. Well, she couldn't be. You. <laughs> there you go, and you appreciate that. Yes. Wonderful. Yes. Rock. Melanie had a chore when she was a young kid, putting putting away the, the silverware after it was washed, and she hated that job. It's irrational. She can do it. You know, she knows that. But, uh, but I, I put away the silverware after it comes up with dishwasher. Great example of a thoughtful gift. Knowing that Melanie doesn't like this, Rock steps in and performs that simple task for her. Right? Not super complicated, but thoughtful and meaningful. Good example. Another one? Good. That would be a gift you could give your spouse. Pray for them. They're struggling with something or wondering about something or whatever's going on. Offer your prayers for that person. What a great gift. Good, Andy. Ken and then Laura. <laughs> uh, she seems to like it when I get the, uh, some of the dishes out of the way before leaving the house for work. Sometimes she'll have to. She'll take the kids off somewhere and have an appointment to run to. And one of the breakfast dishes and my natural inclinations kind of leave them there. But uh, sometimes I'll just, if I can get those out of the way before heading off to work. Very good. And Laura, you appreciate that. Well, I, that wasn't what I was going to say, but I do appreciate that. Yeah. I think I just never met anybody that's so quick to forgive and forget. Ken is? Yeah. Wonderful. Not keeping a record of wrongs. Forgiving, moving on, what a wonderful gift. Because we're going to hurt each other on a regular basis. So, very good. And incidentally, uh, depending on how fast we move through today's material, the next thing we're going to do is an exegesis of Ephesians 5, 21 and following, and then we'll finish our class together looking at conflict resolution. Okay, How do you resolve conflicts well in our relationships? So that's where we're going. Any other examples? So just, just jumping on uh, maybe what Ken said, if I try to be intentional about the small things that are meaningful to Janice, pick up after myself, do the dishes, try not to complain, like just complain and be, uh, whether it's the traffic or loud cars, whatever, just trying to put a lid on that because I know it's not a pleasant thing for her even though she endures it. That's a small gift that I, just to make her environment more pleasant by the way I speak or don't, things I don't say. So just being intentional. Would you like to live in a relationship where the other person was thoughtful about what sort of gift they can bring on a regular basis to the relationship? Does that seem attractive? Why don't we think more that way? Self-focus. We're, we're focused on ourselves. And um, so... By the power of the Spirit of Jesus, the servant par excellence, 
there's actually a way to live that energizes you more than self-focus, which is servant-focused. So that's something we need to uh, work into our hearts. Here's the question on the handout. What's the greatest gift you have to give to the other person, whether it's a roommate, brothers and sisters, close friends in RUF, or your spouse? What's the greatest gift you have? How about this? Your strongest contribution to the health of your relationship or marriage is your weakness. Does that seem a little counterintuitive? Yes, it's not the way I began my marriage. I thought I had to bring all my strengths to the relationship, and they actually kind of got in the way of relational health. That's not what my relationship needed. Knowing you can't do what it takes to love well So here's an honest admission. I can't love my spouse well. Not in and of myself. What is intuitive about me is more the selfishness, not the other-centeredness. Knowing you can't do what it takes to love well, you go in brokenness to Jesus to receive what he can abundantly supply. So owning your own brokenness is one of the greatest gifts you have to give your spouse. I'm broken. I can't do this. I can say that with a smile, because there's help on the way. You don't stop there. You don't stop there. That's not an excuse not to love well. It's the start of loving well. I'm broken. That's the reality. Am I dealing with the reality? Am I admitting it? How many of us wake up first thing in the morning, throw our feet on the floor and say, I'm broken. I can't love my spouse well, my friends well. Left to myself, I will ruin this relationship. See, that's a gift you have to give the relationship, thinking that way. But then you go to Jesus who's, who, uh, to receive what he can abundantly supply. You become a grace getter, humbly dependent on his unfailing grace. Run to Jesus for grace. He always gives grace to those who ask it. Always. And he gives you more grace than you need. Your cup overflows. Isn't that great? One of the psalmists says, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Psalm 23, my cup overflows. There is superabounding grace for needy, broken sinners. That's our hope for our relationships. Grace always outruns our sin. When you are a passionate pursuer of the heart of Jesus, receiving mercy and grace, you will not only become ravishingly beautiful like him, but you will also have grace to give. What do I mean? Pursuing the heart of Jesus, you will become like him. Why is that? Or is that true? You want to dispute the fact? When you pursue the heart of Jesus, you become like Jesus. Chad? Does does that have to do with With David. With David? David was a man after God's own heart. Yeah. I don't know what that means. I mean, pursuing, pursue God's heart. Okay. You're pursuing the heart of Jesus. How is it that you become like him when you do that? That's the way he made the universe. Yeah. Elaborate. Well, that's, you know, this you, is his world. This is his universe. These are his relationships. This is the way his spirit works. This is the way, because he desires to 
love and care for his children. That's just what flows. What flows out of him flows into us. Yeah. You become what you look at. How many of you know uh, the plant jewelweed? Jewelweed, it grows along streams in the mountains. It's called jewelweed because when rain hits the leaves, they beat up like jewels. Incidentally, if you get poison ivy, you can break the jewel. It's a very uh, fluid-filled stem. Break it, put it on poison ivy. It's a natural antidote to cure poison ivy. But here's the point. You can tell things are dry because jewelweed does this. It wilts like this. And then it gets a lot of moisture. It springs up like this. That's the way our hearts are. Filled with the love of Jesus, filled with the grace of Jesus, being in the presence of Jesus fills you with the life of Jesus. And you become like him. That's God's goal. He wants to populate the whole world with little Jesuses. He wants everyone to see Jesus. And you, be, you, 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 you become what you look at. So you read the word of God. You worship this Jesus. You sing to him. You pray to him. You seek him. You get your eyes off yourself. And you become like Christ. And that's a great gift you have to give to your friends and your spouse. And if you have integrity and honesty and humility in your relationship, you ought to have the freedom to say, when it's appropriate, I'm not seeing Jesus here. <laughs> Sing a little too much Mike. A little too much of your depravity, husband, friend, right? But we can say that without condemnation to each other because how did we begin the day? Anybody remember last week? How did you begin the day? I'm not going to hell. That's how you began the day. I don't think you were here. Did you miss that? I was here. Okay. <laughs> you let him off the hook. I'm not going to hell. Are you amazed by the fact? See, until you are, Jesus isn't going to mean a lot to you. Thomas Watson said, Till sin becomes bitter, Christ will not be sweet. I'm not going to hell. Stunning, amazing, me, that's what I deserved. Boy, does that frame the way you're going to treat other people, particularly when they fail you. I failed God this much, you can fail me a whole lot before I'm going to hold it against you. I'm not saying we don't deal with it. We're going to get to conflict resolution, I promise. But. Okay, when you're a passionate pursuer of the heart of Jesus receiving mercy and grace, you will not only become ravishingly beautiful like him, you will also have grace to give. Paul says, Colossians 3, Ephesians 4 and 5, forgive one another, bear with each other as Christ has forgiven you. So the key word in our relationships is as. Christ has done this, as Christ has done it, so us. Okay? Uh, Jesus said, those who are forgiven much, do what? Love much. So you find, I don't have a lot of love in my heart for other people. I don't have a lot of patience and love in my heart for, particularly when my spouse is disappointing me. That's an organic failure in your heart to realize what? How much you've been forgiven. Remember, I'm not going to hell. So the overly demanding, overly critical, overly judgmental, overly scrutinized person in the relationship hasn't spent much time at the precipice of hell. Right? Does that make sense? Those forgiven much, love much. You, here's the principle. You can't give away what you don't have. Get grace. 
so you can give grace. Grace is the fresh air that makes marriage breathe. So is my relationship suffocating under the weight of my small ambitions and selfishness? How would you know it was? I'll let you respond. How would you know your relationships are suffering under the weight of teeny little Jesus, teeny little cross, teeny little grace? How would you know that? Any thoughts? What would be some evidence? Lindsay? Self-pity. Which is born out of a thought, I deserve better than this, woe is me. Good. So Lindsay is saying, always take time to diagnose the source of your emotions. Your emotions are ultimately based on things you're telling yourself. And oftentimes what you're demanding and deserving. Okay? Chad, is the hand going up? Yeah, no, okay. Right quick, because she said self-pity, I think self-righteousness. Self-righteousness, yes. A feeling of superiority. I'm doing this well, why can't you? And, and see, that's where our strengths can hurt our relationships. There are things you're good at. There are things you do better than your spouse. That's okay. We all need to be comfortable with that. But you can't use that as a weapon to feel superior to your spouse. Because ultimately, why are you good at something, ultimately? It's the only reason. Because God gave it to you. The grace of God. It's a gift. Is that what Marty said? It's a gift. But when we forget that, we're dangerous people. Hurtful people, harmful people. Get grace, give grace. Grace is the fresh air that makes a marriage breathe. Grace in you makes you safe. How can you abuse someone else when you're intoxicated with the love of Jesus? You can't, because Jesus is not an abuser. Jesus mourns over the brokenhearted. Jesus weeps over scattered and lost and helpless sheep. Jesus sees brokenness and he can't resist running in to heal it. That DNA gets in you, that's the way you'll treat others in your relationships. Without that DNA, it's, it's just not going to happen. Comments before we move on to number 11? Yes, uh, Juan? When you say, when you're good, when you're better than your spouse at certain things, is that it's great that God really elaborate that? Sure. Everything we do, first of all, our very existence, we exist by the grace of God. We didn't call ourselves into existence, God did. The very breath in our lungs, the very beating of our hearts, that's all by the hand of God. We exist by His sheer mercy and goodness, right? So if there's anything I do well, any natural talents, abilities, if I've kept myself out of trouble, if, if there's anything that's good about my life, God is the source of all good things that come down from the Father of lights. That's what I mean. If you've had a good upbringing, that's the grace of God. Yes. If you survive, sorry, if you survived a bad upbringing, that's the grace of God. If you find yourself wounded and broken and in despair because of your upbringing, there's grace for that to change you. Go ahead. That's why I just wanted to be elaborate a little bit more because sometimes we won't be able to understand how to connect it all the way in our when you take this grace of God without elaborating for others to 
Okay. I, I would, if I get, if I just get grace, I would never understand like, the logical reasoning how that is connected. Okay, and I'm, so I'm sorry, I wasn't clear on that. Okay. Clarification. I think she's yes. Yeah. So how many of us wake up and say, "Oh, this is utterly amazing! I was, I'm, I'm alive and well in the United States of America, one of the freest countries in the world, with unbelievably abundant resources." I mean, how many of us pray, "Give us this day our daily bread"? We don't, because it's a Kroger, it's a giant, right? This, you walk into the grocery store, you ever go, "This is amazing! How much food is here?" I knew a person who, who, um, who was visited by a Russian about 20 years ago, and he took him into a United States supermarket, and the Russian said, this is the charade. You're just putting this on. This isn't real. <laughs> because it was so bad where he came from. He couldn't imagine anybody having what we have. Are we humbled by having access, the freedoms that we have, the abundant resources? Does that humble us? That's why if you want to change your teenager, send them to a third world country on a mission trip in the middle of their teenage years. They will come back different. Because they'll begin to realize how blessed they are. Okay, I saw a hand going up here somewhere. Was it your hand? Uh, was it your hand? Okay. That was like, amen, brother. All right. Thoughts are... So let's look at then number 11. What makes a relationship safe? Why is that an important question? Kind of, it's not a hard question. It's watch scale. I think you need to give them a safe space to be who they are. Okay. Otherwise, you'll never know them. Um, you'll never know the real person that you married. But they need to have a safe space to be all that God wants them to be. Okay, good. Very good answer. Some more reasons. Why is it important that our relationships are safe? Please. Joe? Uh, so that you should have to confront them about something you know that you're not out to hurt them? Or? Okay. Good. We are going to conflict with each other. Our sins are going to get in the middle of our relationships. It's got to be, you're never going to, we'll see when we get to conflict resolution, you can't have a good relationship unless you do that. So you have to have an atmosphere where that's possible. So the illustration, anybody remember the illustration of the sermon last week? That Korean, a certain Korean airline was notorious for a bad safety record because in their culture, the, the, uh, the first officer didn't have freedom to challenge the, the pilot. And they diagnosed that, they changed the culture, and their safety record improved. Stunning, isn't it? So why should our relationships be safe? What was life like in the Garden of Eden? It was absolutely safe. God ruled it. There were no threats to human welfare before the fall. No threats to human welfare. That's the way God designed life. And so relationships need to be a place where you don't wake up and wonder, well, thank goodness she didn't stab me last night in my sleep. Right? Okay. You have kids. Your kids get older. You want them to marry people. It's a big risk. 
I think that the, the, maybe I've said this already, so forgive me, but I think the greatest distance traveled in the universe is when a father takes his daughter's hand and puts it into the hand of another man and he stands back and he's no longer daddy over his daughter. That's the longest distance in the world because you know, your sons are one thing, but your daughter, <laughs> you're giving her heart to somebody else. And you want that to be safe. Absolutely. So when you first pursue Christ passionately, this is really a rewording what we just saw in number 10. In daily prayer, Bible study, fellowship, and worship, when you are hungering for God's glory more than anything else, you will live by His standards for His pleasure, which includes the welfare of others. You'll grow in humility. Can't do relationship without humility. And this is a definition that we used to think was from C.S. Lewis, but we've been corrected by that at Devo Lit. This is actually from Rick Warren. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. It's being other-centered. Being other-centered. So the picture you get in the Bible is two people trying to outdo one another in other-centeredness. That will work. That will work. What won't work? Two people being self-centered. That's a disaster. Uh, grace will empower you to love as you've been loved. And only when only love covers a multitude of sins is any relationship going to be healthy. Therefore, here's a definition of love. Love is a commitment, not a feeling, a commitment to give your best in the service of the other person, to utmost edification, if even in the face of their worst. So you really don't know you're loving someone until you're getting their worst. And where do we see this demonstrated in human history? The cross. We're giving God our worst, crucifying his son. Mocking, jeering, spitting in his face, making him bleed with a crown of thorns, tearing his back to shreds with a cat of nine tails. We're giving God our worst, and what do we get in return? His best. The word of the cross, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. That's love. So when you're getting the worst from your spouse and you're choosing by the power of the Holy Spirit to give your best to that person's edification, now you're talking about love. Everything else is just like or infatuation. That's love. And we've got to have it because we're going to hurt each other. Paul Tripp, his book, What Were You Expecting? That's his book on marriage. What Were You Expecting? <laughs> Hilarious. It's just great. Here's how he contrasts self-love and true love. It is self-love that hates difference. It is self-love that makes you impatient. It is self-love that makes you want your own way. It is self-love that convinces you that your way is the right way. Let's push pause. What, is that, what does that often look like in a relationship? Let's give us an example. Can you think of an example? I want to think it's done my way because I think it's more efficient. Okay, so here's the most efficient way to do this task in our lives. Child rearing, house, whatever, right? This is the most efficient way. It's proven from the way I was raised. It's proven in my experience. This is the best way to do it, right? You're convinced. It's proven because it gets done. Because it gets things done. Okay. Now, 
Here's Chad. This is, right? Fabby? My way's the best way. Here's Chad. What's Chad thinking? Objectively, what's he thinking? Perhaps. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt, Fabby. Perhaps. But would it be reasonable for Chad to enter into a discussion based on what proposition? Can we tease out why exactly you think that's efficient, examine all the factors, and then together we conclude we're going to do this? Is that reasonable? Yeah, that's the way you do it. Joe. Some people don't about value efficiency as much as others, they value other aspects of it. So efficiency isn't going to be the God that rules the day in this case, maybe, right? Right. So it's more efficient to drive faster when you go home after. It's more efficient to do that. It might not be safer. Sorry, Fanny. <laughs> <laughs> so here's a real life situation. Can we just get it done? Here's a right. What'd you say? Can't we just get it done? <laughs> <laughs> Think how inefficient God is with certain things. Oh, boy. I mean, I mean, he allows inefficiency. I'm sorry. He allows it. In what particular area does he allow inefficiency? Relationships. Sanctification. <laughs> you're not instantly free from sin the moment you're uh, right, born again. You're free from its tyranny and its power, but not its presence. So here's a real life situation. Boy meets girl. They begin to talk about the future. Boy has been raised in a homeschooling uh, situation his family it's an extremely positive thing what is he presupposing for his future his spouse and his kids what's he probably presupposing homeschool. I want to homeschool right um, this person uh, had a very positive experience in fill in the blank public school Christian school it doesn't matter it's just different than this so what do we do with that well if, if I'm this person I suspend for a moment my strong conviction that this is the way it's going to be done. I enter into a dialogue. First of all, this if we're just dating, this is years away, right? I enter into a dialogue about the possibilities, all these kinds of things, rather than say, now look, he, this person may conclude, I'm not going to marry somebody who's not committed to homeschool. That's his prerogative, right? Mm -hmm. then, then if this person's not on the same page, the thing's off. But maybe enter into a dialogue about this, hear this person out, and you know, maybe God's calling you to change the way you've held certain convictions. I've confessed to you, when we first got married, I thought the share it way was the best way. Does that mean it's five after? Yes. Okay. When we first got married, the share it way was the best way. Had I known anything different? Was it efficient? I don't think so. As far as I knew. <laughs> We didn't think so. <laughs> but so I brought this arrogant, I brought this arrogant, selfish paradigm to the way we're going to do things. And I, I'll use the illustration again. You probably heard it. I'm sorry, but our first disagreement when we were first married was, when do you do the dishes? She was raised in a home where no one goes anywhere until the last crumb is off the table. No one goes anywhere. My mom, my mom was a tomboy. If there's daylight and there's a field across the street, she's like, dinner's over, go. Go, we'll do the dishes later. It's like, go play sports. That's, that's. 
So I was raised very differently. And I entered Merritt. This was our biggest fight. No, I'm going to go play frisbee golf with my friend Rick. <laughs> we were way ahead of the curve. This was 1978. We had invented frisbee golf long before other people. Anyway. So no, Jan is just like, no, let's clean up the dishes first. And we're willing to argue over this. The time we spent arguing, we could have the dishes done. <laughs> but I'm just telling you, it was arrogance on my part to let this be, rather than just do this. Can we? Yeah. Anyway. Um, so I pushed pause in the middle of Paul trip here. <clears throat> it is self-love that makes winning more attractive than unity. Love celebrates who God has made the other person to be. Love celebrates the process of working together to become one. Love celebrates the grace of change that operates in the middle of the difficulty of difference. Love prizes unity as willing to make sacrifices to achieve it. Love turns difference into an opportunity to experience a deeper and fuller unity. Love isn't impatient and doesn't walk away. Love perseveres. Love stays active until what God has planned becomes your actual experience. Love listens, works, and waits. Unity happens when love intersects with difference. The presupposition is you're going to have difference of opinions on things. You're, just, you're, going to, you're very more different than you know. Okay? Is that helpful? Is that true? Have you seen that in your experience? Any comments or thoughts on Paul Tripp's observations? This is a seasoned Christian counselor, one of the wisest writers of our in the Christian world, I think. Thoughts? Yeah, it's true. Just not easy. It's not easy, but it's true. <laughs> yeah, no one said it was easy. <laughs> Come on, not efficient again. Not efficient. And look, see, Janice and I joke, I have an easy idol. I'm really happy if things are easy, meaning the traffic's easy, that was easy. So we, talk, we joke about Mike's easy idol, and we've, so we found new words for it, efficient, uh, whatever. But so look, but it, truly, if, if there's an idol deep in my heart that I want things easy, then I may walk away from a situation that's hard because I'm driven by my idol. And the invitation here is to say, you have to know what those idols are, subconsciously resist them for a greater cause, which is the unity of the relationship, which is ultimately bringing glory to God. How? It's mirroring the unity that God enjoys in himself right now in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, utterly delighting in each other, unified. There's no disunity in the Godhead. God wants something of that reflected and so he gives us the grace to deal with our differences. Okay? Thoughts or comments before we move on? Yeah. Would we say, of course, our presupposition is we have two people in Christ who are working on this together. Yes. And we have, we have obviously other issues that have to be considered when it's not an yes. equal you. Yeah. Or different levels of maturity even within... Yes, good point. Uh, Paul talks in 2 Corinthians about being equally yoked. He says in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you marry, you marry only in the Lord. So clearly the Bible says if you're a Christian, you can only marry a Christian. You cannot marry a non-Christian. You'll be unequally yoked. And that's the point Janice is making. You see, this is never, you, how do you have this kind of relationship where one person is seeking Jesus and the other isn't? It would be a stunning achievement of humanity 
for a non-Christian and a Christian to be happily married. And I believe it can happen. It's even more stunning achievement of humanity for two non-Christians to be happily married. If they are, they are inadvertently borrowing capital from the Christian worldview and employing it, the methods of it, in the relationships, like other-centeredness. But ultimately, I think sin is going to... That relationship can't bring glory to God, can it? It can't, because God's not in it. But anyway, Janice's point is being equally yoked, and then if you have one person... Here's our yoke. If you have one person who's rapidly pursuing the heart of Jesus and the other isn't, that's going to be a hard one, isn't it? Or one person you know, is just going through the motions half-heartedly, the other isn't, the other is. You know, that's going to be tough. Good point. Thoughts or reflections? What's the greatest gift you have to give your spouse in light of that? Don't be the one tipping the yoke. <laughs> You are pursuing the heart of Jesus. All your, all your heart. You can't give away you don't have. Grace will never fail you. Grace will bless that other relationship. Sometimes visible, sometimes unexpected ways. So what's our time? I don't know if we should start into number 12 or not. 12 after. 12 after. Probably not. Any, uh, any stories of love language put into practice over the last couple weeks? Just to cycle back to love language, any testimonies or stories of love language in action? Just out of curiosity. Okay. Yeah. Oh, yes. Huang? Conscious change for the sake of the relationship to call your spouse. Right? Good job. Yay, Tao! Thank you. That's a, a, an excellent example. It might seem like a simple thing, but it was very meaningful to Juan. Good. Any other examples? One thing you can do is you can go to your friend, spouse, roommate, whatever it is, and say, how are you experiencing my selfishness? Because I don't want you to experience my selfishness that way. How are you experiencing it? Because probably, oftentimes, we are blinded to our own sinful patterns of selfishness. Right? We're so, oftentimes. So what, what's the impact I'm having on you? How are you experiencing me? Please tell me. I assume I've got blinders on. Help me understand how you're experiencing the ways I'm being selfish in the relationship. That's a real act of love, isn't it? And then you need to act on those things where it's going to seem very insincere or disingenuous to ask and then do nothing about it. Bear with me. Okay, let's, let's pray for you all. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters. I'm so grateful for their interest.
ultimately come from you putting that in their hearts. In the way relationships work, the way they're designed to thrive, and the hope we have in Christ, whose power, whose grace, whose cross, whose love, whose mercy, whose forgiveness is ultimately the only um, uh, power to, to bring about good relationships. So endow our marriages and relationships with these things. Cause us to be those who, for whom sin is bitter, but then Christ is sweet. And as the sweetness of Christ fills our hearts, we trust there will be an overflow of grace. So let us be grace-getters and uh, trust you that that grace then will be given to those around us for their good, just as you've loved us and brought good to us and mercy and life. May we be those channels through which your grace is transforming those around us and all to the glory of our great God. And, uh, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.